Hello, and welcome back to Get Psyched. I am your host, Alana Silver, and today's episode is exciting because we have with us Dr. Russell Romeo, who is both the department chair of Barnard's psych department, as well as a great professor of psych and neuroscience. And I can say that because I actually took his systems and behavioral neuroscience course my sophomore year at Barnard, and it was such a fun class for anybody that is interested. In addition to being a great professor, Dr. Romeo runs a lab that studies pubertal maturation on brain and behavior. Specifically, his lab is interested in the impact of stress on the development of the neural circuits involved with emotional reactivity. So, in other words, Professor Romeo is trying to understand and help the teenagers. If you have ever been a teenager going through puberty or have even interacted with a teenager going through puberty, then I think we can all agree that this is admirable and important work. There is nothing on the planet that could make me go back to being a stressed out teenager. I feel for all of you. Good luck out there. So as you can probably tell from that introduction, Professor Romeo is a crucial part of the psych department at Barnard, both in research and education, and I feel very lucky to have him as a guest on the show. Let's get psyched. Dr. Romeo, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, My pleasure to be here. (laughs) Yeah, it's great to see you. Uh, To get started, I know you've been the department chair of psych for about a year and a half now. Let's just jump right in. Tell us a bit about your role and how it's been going so far. Uh, Well, there's lots of different roles the chair of the department plays, and um, it's really been a trial by fire this last year because of obvious reasons, things I had never anticipated. Uh, None of us have anticipated have have come up and uh, demand uh, more attention perhaps uh, than normally from a department chair. But yeah, we, I mean, the department chair, at least in sight, does a a number of different things. I mean, some which are pretty normal and, and frequent, like hosting and convening the departmental meetings where all the faculty of the department get together to discuss issues that are affecting the department and things like setting up faculty searches to hire new faculty which is actually a very labor-intensive job, as you can imagine, by trying to recruit as many people as possible to apply for the job and then going through, you know, uh, sometimes over 100 applications wow. to try to find uh, a few of the candidates that will be the, the strongest candidates and who will complement and extend the specialties of the program and the department. And then there's also just uh, serving as liaison between students and faculty um, and also serving as a liaison from the provost to the faculty of the department. So sort of um, you know, being the person that uh, students can go to if they have questions, but also being the person that um, communicates from the provost's office down to the faculty in our department. So uh, quite, a, quite a few different roles to play. I'm curious how COVID has impacted your ability to do your job. You just spoke about hiring and how difficult it is, but in these times, it must be a particularly daunting task because if I'm correct, all new faculty will have to start completely virtual. Yeah. Yeah. So for the next round of hiring, how is that going to look? Well, yeah, I mean, so everything is a little bit delayed in the sense that when we were hiring last year, those faculty are just arriving on campus now. And for instance, we have a new 
faculty member in the department, Professor Kate Thorson, who uh, just started. And although she was a term assistant professor in our department the year before, now she's in this full-time tenure track job. And it's been very difficult. I'm actually having Professor Thorson on the show. Oh, excellent. Yeah, we just finished up a pre-interview. Great. Well, so, And then I'm, I'm sure she'll be able to expand on just the issues that come up with trying to start a lab when there's very little infrastructure here to help. Just getting things set up from vendors, for instance, to get your lab set up. Um, it's difficult under normal circumstances, but now it's been made much more difficult by, you know, having delivery slowed, um, having people limited to get onto campus and, you know, so on and so forth. But yeah, I mean, that was it, it, right when uh, COVID hit, we were in the middle of a number of different interviews to fulfill a number of positions. And last year we were able to hire a couple of tenure track faculty, a couple of lecturers and one term assistant professor. So it was a a lot of hiring that we did last year. And that was made a little more complicated with with COVID. Some of those interviews had to be done over Zoom, which isn't ideal. It's always nice to meet people in person. But, uh, you know, we, we were able to persevere. The, the provost was able to still come through with, with the hiring, despite the budget constraints and issues. So it, although difficult, I think in the end, it, 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 it worked out and we were able to get five great new faculty, uh, which was uh, something that was we really needed the, the new faculty, both for replacing ones that had retired or left and um, also just to continue to build the department. Well, thank you so much for all the hard work that you've put in these past few months. (laughs) Obviously, this is a position that has a lot of moving parts. When it comes to hiring, which sounds like one of the most crucial parts of your job, Mm -hmm. does a faculty member's research play a part in your decisions? Yeah, I think, uh, well, I I guess it depends on the position. Uh, Some of our positions, like lecturer, were probably more attuned to their, their teaching experiences and advising experiences for for tenure track faculty or those that are going to have active research labs, yeah, research plays a big role. It's certainly by no means the only role. It's common for our application process to involve not just research and research statements, but also teaching statements uh, and their philosophy on advising and teaching as well. So it's really looking at the you know the whole package, so to speak. And um, But yeah, research is an important part of that. What are they doing? Does it complement and extend what we currently do in the department? Is it something that students will be will resonate with? Which yeah, that's is why very we smart. Uh, have students coming to the job talks and, and sometimes meeting with the faculty. You know, is it something they could do here at Barnard with the, the, the sorts of things that we have at this institution? So I also, I know we have a departmental representative for undergraduate affairs specifically. That's Professor Josh New, who I also had for cognitive psych. I'd, I think it would be really great just to talk about some of those key differences between your position and his, because I know when I first came to Barnard as a transfer student, I was definitely given access to understanding the different roles of the department. But since Psych is such a big department, sometimes I would get lost. You know, who do I go to to sign a paper? Who do I go to for advice? If you could just talk a bit about the, the differences and where people can go to get their questions answered besides the frequently asked questions, which everybody should be looking at online, that would be great. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, I mean, it, yeah, it's a, it's a big department and it, it, it takes a number of, of people to make sure things run efficiently in that. Uh, students don't fall through the cracks because I think we have something like uh, on average about 125 majors in psychology, which is a which is a large major uh, at Barnard. Um, but anyway, yeah, to, to answer your question, the departmental representative who is uh, Professor Joshua New, um, he really serves as a 
as as a critical liaison between the students and uh, the department. Um, and basically, any form um, uh, or question that comes about um, the student would have for the department is is often able to be answered by Professor New, and he has the authority to to do all the official signatures for things like declaring your major, for changing your advisor. Um, also, when inevitably something shows up in your degree audit, which doesn't mm-hmm. seem to be right or correct, and you would like things changed, he's really that person that can um, help you solve those problems. And um, it really does allow the chair to focus on um, some of the other things that are going on in the department. Um, because just as you can imagine, the email traffic um, for having that many students um, would be um, oh, very, gosh, very difficult to keep the focus on um, all the various things the department has to do. But yeah, so I mean, Josh is really the um, one of the persons that if you have questions, need signatures on uh, official forms for the college, uh, he really is the first stop. And, um, and, and a number of students uh, who have emailed me with these questions, they, they, they get back to sort of the same templated batch response, which is, you know, you should talk to our <laughs> departmental representative CC'd here and he can help you with this request. Um, and, and, and that's also to make sure that there um, is a, a running paper trail of sorts so that when students have questions and Josh adjudicates whatever the decision is on that, if they're asking about a transfer class or something along those lines, that one person is dealing with it, that there's um, a set of email chains that um, that he can refer to if and when problems arise at the end of the student's time here at Barnard. And um, many times um, Josh's communication with the students has made it um, so much easier in the end for the students to make sure they can graduate. Thank you, Josh. We appreciate you. Um, and, <laughs> yeah, totally, totally, perhaps underappreciated, but incredibly important position. And you know, without without him, it, this this would be that much. Of course, more impossible. I mean, it really is you guys who make it so that we can graduate and that students are still progressing through what we need to. So that it is really appreciated, and I'm glad that. We're having the chance to talk about this so that people know sure. where to go. Something that is a bit more selfish, something I've always wanted to understand, and I'm, I'm sure you you can answer this, course offerings. How do you come up with courses? Who's the person behind creating these concepts and these classes that we end up seeing for each of the semesters? Is it more specific to the professor that they get to choose? Um, or is it something that you all kind of sit in a room in and... and and talk about this. Well, a little bit of it, a little bit of all of that. Um, it, 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 and it might not be as formal as you think. <laughs> so, um, so I mean, one, one thing. There's a certain amount of of I, I wouldn't call it, um, you know, inertia. But I, I mean, I, there, it just we do have to offer certain courses every semester, or at least every academic year. And these are going to be in the core areas of psychology um, because students might want to pursue any one of those disciplines um, further. And when one is applying to graduate programs, there's going to be certain expectations that students have certain courses, statistics courses, uh, lab courses, uh, seminars, senior seminars, um, usually some sort of capstone. Um, This is what programs are looking for. So we have to make sure that we're offering um, uh, enough um, opportunities for students to be able to meet those um, requirements and those demands of something. That so they you might do you afterwards. kind of look to the long term and think how how many of these psych 
students are going to want to be going on to create this as their career? Well, yes. And but also on top of that, I mean, there are certainly guidelines from the American Mm -hmm. Psychological Association that basically say as an undergraduate psychology major, these are the things that your uh, your major should be um, offering. And, um, you know, happy to say that we do offer what is what, 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 what are around the guidelines. Obviously, you know, departments can always do better. There can always be more courses offered. And that's always depends dependent on how many faculty are present. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we the you know, and there's depending also on the popularity of certain courses, we'll um, try to either open up more sections of those or offer them, uh, say, for instance, every semester instead of just once in the academic year. Um, and that's just by simply looking at the data and the trends that happen from year to year. Um, so uh, there is a little bit of sitting down and thinking, um, what do we need to offer? Um, and of course, we want to offer everything we can. And then mm. what can we offer? <laughs> uh, who's available to teach those courses? If anyone's on temporary leave for whatever professional or personal reason, um, then we have to decide whether it's possible to not offer that course this year, this semester. Uh, or do we go and get somebody who can teach uh, sort of on a part-time basis as an adjunct to perhaps fulfill a need? Um, so, yeah, and that happens um, pretty much in the spring while, while we're getting ready for the upcoming academic year. And your question about how did COVID affect me personally as a chair, um, that's one thing that really nailed us and uh, really put us in a spin because we had established what we were going to offer this academic wow. year in the spring before COVID hit. So we had basically things staffed, lined up, knowing what the curriculum was going to look like for this academic year. And then when the announcement came that we were going to be going remote, and then this idea of we need to have three semesters, fall, spring, and summer, and then within those semesters offering intensive courses, we really went back to the drawing board, looked at what we were going to offer, tried to keep as many things as the same as we could, um, because students were counting on us delivering those courses and making progress toward their major, um, but still creating the flexibility um, that uh, the, the college wanted from us to make sure that students have, you know, options and, and uh, again, that flexibility. So that was a, that was a large undertaking. And again, having a very uh, collegial department and a great administrator uh, made that um, virtually impossible task possible. Um, plus, there was the the timeline. Oh, and oh, we needed tomorrow. God, a complete <laughs> revamp. So, and just, um, I just see that as, oh, yeah. it must have been tumultuous. And it had to be spread over these three terms yeah. that you guys had never taken on before. And still maintaining the certain amount of courses that each student had to take. That that must have been very challenging. Yeah, yeah, it was a lot of just, you know, stepping back, looking at what we were, what we had planned to offer, what we had offered in the past, and then you know, convening Zoom meetings with the department over the summer and saying, well, what do we do? And um, there were great suggestions that were coming, things that we can uh, change or our faculty who are willing to teach in immersive formats, some courses that just didn't seem that they would be appropriate to teach in the immersive format, um, and uh, just a lot of discussion and then action. Um, uh, but yeah, with I think with the help of, of pretty much every single member in the department, as well as the administrator, we were able to, to get something together. And although uh, I'm sure not ideal, um, it's, it's sort of what we could do in the time that we had. I'm a senior right now. I'm doing a senior thesis. I'm, I think I'm one of about seven or eight of us in the psych department. Mm-hmm. And we just have this beautiful Zoom community. <laughs> I don't typically like Zoom. I mean, we all have Zoom fatigue at this point, of course. But 
sure. coming into that space and just knowing that I'm going to have this group of people that I see each week. It, I didn't think that the senior thesis would be the same, and it's not, but I feel like it's just been this very easygoing, wonderful experience so far. So I, on my end, you guys succeeded. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I think we're finding there are some, you know, yes, Zoom is by no means any, you know, appropriate um, way of, of, of teaching on a regular basis. Uh, there is something yeah. that you just can't get with the in-person interaction with the with the students. But um, there are some advantages and some silver linings to this. And, and I do think that there is a perhaps at least in some classes, a greater sense of community because because of that. I know that in my, I'm teaching an intensive seminar and we, although we just started because it was a fall B oh, good course. Luck. Good luck. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, but being able to, you know, I, always I would be in a class early and stay a little bit later if possible, but um, it seems now students do get on to the Zoom call early and they stay around a little later and there's much more informal conversations that were happening. Um, in that format than, than say, for instance, in the classroom. It's almost like a weird idea like FaceTime. When you're speaking with someone on FaceTime, it is this informal way of communicating. So you're able to connect with your professors in this way that perhaps you would have been a bit insecure or embarrassed to do so in, in person. So maybe a silver lining, as you said, would be going forward one day when we're all off Zoom. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Willing, yep. That we'll, we'll feel maybe a bit of that barrier has been dropped, which would be amazing. Yeah. But yeah, now absolutely. that we have gone through all of the nitty gritty details of your administrative work, let's let's jump to the fun stuff. Tell us about your lab, your research. I mean, you do, you do such incredible work and it's very particular, but also very diverse. So yeah, tell us a bit more about that. How did you come to, to where you are? Oh, yeah. I mean, I came to where I am very circuitous. I, 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 it was not a direct line. Um, I, I know I've, I've, I, when I talk to students about research, one, one thing I like to bring up is students often wonder, how did we end up doing what we're doing? I mean, it just seems so particular, so specific. Um, and uh, how did you end up, how did you know that that's what you wanted to study? And the answer is right. we How did you decide on this one yeah. thing? <laughs> yeah, we, we didn't. And it developed over time and uh, it, it, it continues to evolve and develop. But um, yeah, my research started off uh, as not even in the context of psychology. I was a music major at first um, and decided to pursue psychology and then eventually um, neuroscience because of just building and involving interests. And then particularly how I got interested in the research that I'm doing currently is one of my first labs that I worked in um, as a master's student at, at, at Villanova University was looking at the effects of prenatal stress and, um, and prenatal alcohol exposure on the development of the spinal cord, um, which uh, How is... particular. Yeah. Um, uh, because it, it it turns out that um, uh, stress and 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 alcohol have this interactive effect on certain areas in the spinal cord that can um, influence um, the development of of cells that control motor function. But at any rate, when I was doing that work, um, I, I I did not know that I would end up uh, not looking in the spinal cord. I didn't know that my research would not be looking at prenatal alcohol. But my research is still development, and my research is still looking at stress. And uh, as I was doing that work, um, the next step when I went into graduate school was I worked with um, 
Professor Cheryl Sisk at Michigan State University, who was very interested in uh, brain development, but during puberty. And so I kind of took the work that I was doing from uh, the prenatal perspective and, and, and brought it sort of up the developmental ladder and um, started looking at the way that puberty was affecting um, the brain, development of the brain. And from there, although I was really interested mostly in reproductive development during puberty, when I went on to do my postdoc at Rockefeller University here in um, New York, um, the person I was working with, the, the late Professor Bruce McEwen, um, uh, his lab was very interested in the role that stress played in uh, brain development. So then I took my interests in puberty and adolescence that I had learned as a graduate student and brought some of these expertise from my postdoc. And that's now where my research has largely been going in the context of how stress affects the developing adolescent brain. Um, so, yeah, you start off from domino square one and you end up, you know, 10, 20 years later uh, in some relatively different field. Uh, there are some threads that, that continue to go through the work that I've done. But, um, yeah, what I was doing as a graduate student is very different from what I'm doing now as a faculty member. And as an undergrad, I, I have two questions based off what you said. One, was there a moment where you thought, I mean, I, I also love music and I, I think there's typically either one, two, maybe three paths people can see themselves going down. What made you turn from being a music major to going full-blown in psych? And also, how did you find that thread? Like, I know I'm interested in dyadic romantic relationships. I've come to that because actually when I was a senior, um, in high school, we had this incredible speaker who said, whatever you're staying up late at night studying, just follow that. And I was just <laughs> reading about romance and reading about relationships. And I always thought that was just incredible advice, isn't it? Yeah. And th so how did you find your thread particularly? Yeah, well, I, and again, it, it wasn't direct. It was when I was um, starting to study music, um, I figured I would need to have a potential fallback profession than just being performance art. Um, and one thing I was getting interested in was thinking about uh, the field of music and applying it in the, and at the time, a, a relatively new field, music therapy, sort of like a physical therapy, occupational therapy. But using music, uh, using music as a as a vehicle or a platform in, in which um, it could be therapeutic uh, for people, whether they have limited physical mobility or um, you know recoveries, but basically using music as a sort of a platform for therapy. With that, uh, like many therapy schools, you had to have a background in biology, chemistry, anatomy, and physiology, as well as psychology, and and you know it's a very it's a very interdisciplinary area. And so I started taking those courses, um, thinking if I were to go on to a, a master's program, perhaps in music therapy, what was I going to need? And, you know, when I started taking those courses in, you know, biology and chemistry, as well as psychology, I just became just, you know, as I guess, I, as you were saying, that's what I was reading at night. And that's what I was very incredibly interested in. And uh, yeah, I think following that advice was, is, I think it's, I think it's good advice. I, I just figured, okay, I mean, I can always continue to play music and I continue to, to play music. What do you play? I'm so curious. Oh, uh, guitar, guitar. Um, Amazing. What kind of music do you like? Um, lots of different types of music. Uh, at the time I was largely studying classical guitar, but, uh, and I still do play some of that, but uh, mostly it's just fiddling around on my acoustic or electric guitars or anything like that. But um, 
but yeah, I mean, it's still something that I, that I, I love to do. It's something that I, I consider it a very important hobby, a, port, a very important part of me. Um, I played in groups all my life that was, that was very formative of how I, and I, I grew up. So, uh, um, you know, I'm incredibly thankful that I had those experiences and I don't plan on getting rid of those experiences, but at least as far as what my profession was and what I was going to follow professionally, um, it really just became how psychology and biology were interacting. And I think at that time for me, neuroscience was, I thought that this is my calling. This is really what I'm interested in doing. And I could still potentially um, bring something like music therapy, but understanding neuroscience was going to be important. Or if I wanted to understand music, understanding neuroscience would be very important. So I, I, I saw some threads there, but it just became um, with, uh, you know, reading a few textbooks, reading a few um, books, it just became incredibly interested in it. I know back when you were in college around, it was what, 1989 or so, I believe, there wasn't even a real field of neuroscience going on. How did you find this passion of yours when things weren't happening? What it Was it through animal studies? Was it an incredible mentor? Where did you, how did you stumble upon this? Because I'm sure with such a, we're, we are such a young field, this will continue to happen. Like if we're looking towards the future, new areas of psychology are popping up all over the place. Mm-hmm. How did you find the stability to just jump into this, you know, very yeah. new and evolving study? Yeah. I- yeah, and when I was in college, I was I, when I started my undergraduate degrees in the late '80s. I finished in uh, 1993 with my bachelor's in psychology, and and I was at Edinburgh University of Pennsylvania. It's a state school in uh, Western Pennsylvania. And um, when I was at uh, school there, yeah, we did not have a neuroscience major, um, and, and we only had a behavioral. It was called. Um, biopsychology was the course that I took. We didn't even have a behavioral neuroscience. I don't think there was neuroscience really anywhere in course descriptions, at least in the early 90s. Um, that's not to say that neuroscience wasn't a developing field at the time. I mean, there has been a, a societies, uh, Society for Neuroscience, and there have been um, journals devoted to things that are, you know, would be considered neuroscience. But yeah, there wasn't that undergraduate neuroscience major that is as, as common now. Um, but it wasn't that people weren't studying the brain and it wasn't that people weren't studying uh, neurons and, and how neurons affect behavior and how behavior you know, feeds back on neurons. It was just called something different, you know, biological psychology mm. or biopsych. Um, and also in departments of biology, there certainly were a number of neurobiologists and you could take neurobiology courses. But again, that would be as a biology major. Um, or a biopsych course right. as a psychology major. And right around the 90s, it seems to be that's when these interdiscipline areas were starting to develop. And uh, I think Barnard was, uh, I don't remember the exact date because it was before my time here, but the psych department decided this was an area that was developing and they made a neuroscience and behavior program. It wasn't a standalone department, which it is today. Um, But that was really one of the first things. And I believe that started in the 90s, largely through uh, Professor Silver and Balsam. Um, and then with the addition of, of faculty in both psychology and biology. So, yeah, I think for me, it was just, I found that part of psychology, although I found all of the different facets of psychology fascinating. I did take social psychology, personality, clinical. I took all those courses as an undergraduate, but my biopsych courses were just something that I resonated more with, I guess, than some of the other classes. Um, and, you know, from there, it was just wanting to get more and more interested in, in it. Um, and I luckily had that uh, ability because, one wonderful opportunity that landed and sort of in my lap is that my academic advisor 
at Edinburgh University, uh, Professor Charlie Edwards, um, he had a lab and he um, was trying to get students to work in, in, in a lab and I was I was happy to help out. I mean, I think my first job was cleaning uh, cages and <laughs> and, and uh, uh, we, we, we worked with pigeons and so they, they could get messy. It was a, a wonderful opportunity and I'm not sure, I mean, I really feel Edinburgh was a was a was a place in a way similar to Barnard in that we did have interactions with our faculty. Um, it was you know it, it wasn't on it was not uncommon for an undergraduate student mm. to be working closely with a faculty member on what their scholarship was, and that was a great opportunity. And that also I think solidified my interest because it was somebody who was doing um, behavioral I guess what we would call now behavioral neuroscience. Um, somebody who was interested in how animals learn about relationships and associations and doing that behavioral work with with Professor Edwards made me want to get more um, sort of then, well, what was the mechanism behind that and what was mediating that learning? And that's what kind of brought me into the more biological aspects of, of psychology and neuroscience specifically. So again, some of these just being uh, willing to take advantage of an opportunity. And I was very lucky in that sense to be given that opportunity and, and uh, very grateful that I had that. Another common thread I'm, I'm just hearing listening to you speak is the ability for your interest to develop over time. You know, the first piece of work that you, you did with this incredible advisor, it, it's not necessarily the, the work or the study you're doing now, as you said. And that's just something personally, as I look towards my future, that draws me towards this area of, you know, social science. You don't have to change the job or the career. People that are very curious, I like to think that of myself. I don't have to change my entire focus i can just i can just change the area of focus so that's really exciting and i think that's it's wonderful to hear from a professor specifically to watch how your your journey has changed and grown and it will continue to do so so something i want to know is is there a singular moment that you found most interesting in what you found throughout your career what was a finding that really sticks with you i think um Probably something I did as a as a postdoc, and it's actually what what sent me along um, my current well one of my current lines of research, but probably the one that I'm most sort of active on, and and that's the development of the hormonal stress response. And when I was uh, a, a, a postdoc, like I said, I was bringing some of my interest in training as a PhD student, looking at puberty mostly from a reproductive perspective, and then bringing that together with uh, the work that I was doing as a postdoc on the role that stress played and in, in, on um, brain structure and function and really saw an area where I might be able to sort of carve out my own niche because there was very little about puberty and adolescence and stress. There was a lot about puberty, adolescence and reproduction uh, in neuroscience um, mm -hmm. and fertility, for instance, and how fertility um, comes about and how the brain controls the reproductive axis and, and how it gets activated during puberty. But there was very little that we knew about um, how the stress axis was was involved in um, puberty adolescence, which was surprising given that we know that hormonal uh, hormonal changes are sort of a hallmark of puberty um, and into adolescence, and we also know it's a time where there's great emotional change, right? um, okay. and, and a time when stress changes to quantity and quality change. And um, anyway. I was doing some uh, some work, and I think when I when I started thinking about well, what do we know at, at this point about the develop the puberal and adolescent development of stress reactivity? And, and like any scientist, one of the first things you do is start off with looking at well, what's been done before you. 
And when I was going through various, um, you know, databases, PubMed, PsychLit, so on and so forth, when, when I, well, I was just, uh, just totally floored by the lack of the research. Mm. In fact, when I first started thinking about this, there were, um, I think, a sum total of two papers that had been published, at least in animal research, looking at how oh, puberty, um, uh, well, how the stage of pubertal development um, was associated with changes in hormonal stress reactivity. Um, there was a paper that was done in the late 70s and then another one that was done in the early 90s um, by two separate labs. Um, and uh, that's when I was, that was one of those moments where I was like, ah, this is maybe an area then where I could bring some of my experience to bear and try to make some sense of, of what's happening here. But I think really the first thing that was one of those moments where I looked at the data and I looked at it again is... One thing that we had found is um, one thing that happens during puberty is that hormonal stress responses last longer than they do in adulthood. Um, so that all things being equal, when an animal experiences a stressor and they're in that pubertal stage, the hormones that they secrete, uh, things like cort, um, one of the adrenal hormones, um, it goes on for much longer, about an hour longer than the adult animal. And we're still trying to figure out why that happens, what's the implications of that? Does it have anything to do with the sort of vulnerabilities that happen during a stressful adolescence? We don't know. Um, but one of the other things we found was that normally in adult uh, animals, including humans, if you stress an individual and um, you give them the same stressor over and over again, it's what they call homotypic stressor. Um, we tend to start habituating to that. So if you were to measure somebody's hormonal response uh, to a stressor, but you give them that same stressor day in and day out, eventually they will habituate to it where they don't show as great a response. And maybe that's not too surprising because if you think about your experience of, let's say you have a stressful commute or something, you know, after maybe the fourth or fifth time you do it, you just learn to, you know, almost tolerate it in a way. It's like when you smell something very bad and you give it a good few smells that you're yeah, going sure. to. And, yeah, sure. And, and habituation is, is, is not an uncommon um, parameter in, in yeah. lots of different, um, at least physiological processes. But what we found was in the context of, of stress. So if you do that to adult animals, they'll show a classic habituation within the third or fourth experience of the stressor that it almost looks like they're not being stressed, even though they are, you know. Uh, in, in the stressful situation, but hormonally, it doesn't look like they're being stressed. But when we looked at adolescent animals, um, they not only didn't habituate, they actually uh, showed a sensitized response. So they were showing a much greater response than they would just to, um, to, to one stressor. And that really, when I saw that, I thought, okay, so not only is it different acutely, but now also when you start adding experience, the system is, is being affected very differently. And that was the moment where I thought, okay, this is... Um, uh, I can also now start thinking about experience. So it wasn't just a physiological change that was like a one-off thing that once you start adding experience, there also was different patterns that were emerging. And that's really, I think, what got me keenly interested in, um, in the role that hormone um, stress reactivity and, and pubertal and adolescent development play and interact with each other. So that was, I think, for my moment, one of my aha <laughs> times. Yeah, you're yeah. Sure, yeah. yeah. Amazing. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Kind of on the flip side of this, what has been the hardest part of your career or your research so far? Did you ever run up against any circumstances that made you think, oh, maybe this isn't for me or or maybe I should take a different route? Yeah. 
Well, I think one thing that's all, and I, this, this must be, I think, something common amongst all fields of study is just being able to, um, just being able to do it in the sense of getting the support for it. Um, and, and, and I don't mean support from the college or uh, support from your department because, you know, people are always trying to support one another in their research endeavors. But really, at least in the context of the research that I do, getting the uh, grant support um, and uh, filling out grant applications uh, to try to uh, justify to federal organizations like the National Institutes of Health um, or the National Science Foundation by, um, you know, asking for, you know, thousands of dollars to be able to do this research, which is a privilege. And um, it, it's, 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 as you can imagine, not an easy process. Um, you have to be able to write a convincing argument of why studying what you're studying is important and necessary. Um, and making it very clear what you plan on doing, because these grants are often for, you know, multiple years. And, you know, what do you plan on doing over the next three to five years and being able to justify um, doing that? Uh, and, you know, nine times out of 10, you're not successful because, you know, it's tough asking for, you know. Oh, you said nine times out yeah, of I 10. Mean, and, that is not yeah, a yeah, no, it's, I mean, there's a lot. Yeah. I mean, you put in a lot of grants and you hear a lot of no's. Um, but a lot of those grants come back with with feedback, and um, it really helps mm. when that you know, and it's constructive feedback, hopefully. And you retool your ideas, and you hone your thinking, um, and you draw from those um, from those responses to make it a stronger grant. And so, although uh, I, I've never had the experience where I put something in and it gets funded right away, I've, I mean, some people have, and that's wonderful, but I've never had that. And uh, that, <laughs> Congrats, <laughs> yeah. guys. Um, but you know, you, 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 the tenacity is something that I, I is, can't be, um, you know, you can't take it for granted. You just have to keep going back, uh, rewriting, revising. And, um, my experience has been, um, as long as you're sensitive to that feedback and you, uh, try to get, um, the, you know, a, a stronger, uh, grant proposal out, um, sometimes, sometimes you meet with success, but, you know, to keep your program going, um, sometimes that's all you need is, 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 is one grant for a, a certain period of time. And then as you answer those questions, they typically will come up with many more questions. That is your next proposal and your next proposal. Um, but I would say that as, as a, um, as a neuroscientist, um, at least from the scholarship side of things, um, just keeping the funding is, is always been, I think, one of the more difficult parts of the job. Um, but also, I, and I understand why that is the case. I mean, you know, uh, no one's just going to give you money to do what you want to do. Um, that we, we, we don't live in, we don't live in that, in that dream that world, but, um, but being able to yeah. make the case, uh, for your work and communicate that, um, it, it's, that's always, I think, been the most difficult part, at least for me. How does being a teacher relate to to this and also re relate in general to this pattern we've been talking about? You know, as a researcher, you get to grow and shift and change. Do you feel like being a teacher has also allowed you that sort of mobility? And do you get access to more grants through being a teacher? What's the relationship there between researcher and university professor? Yeah, for me, it I mean, in, in Barter in general works on the model of the scholar teacher and that, uh, you know, the, the work that we do in our scholarship strengthens our teaching and presumably vice versa. And I, I, I believe that. Um, 
I, yeah, I do think that I, I'm able to develop in my teaching. I think also the research that I'm doing has, in, has helped me in the context of teaching, of, of what I teach and how I teach it. Um, also, there's some courses that I teach, like my senior seminars, that are specific to my area of research. Um, I'm, like I said, I am teaching an intensive course right now in Fall B, and it's Adolescent Neurobehavioral Development. So, you know, go figure. Uh, it's something very wow. near and dear to my heart. And um, But I think then it makes it the, the ability to uh, teach. The course changes every time I teach it because there's more information that keeps coming from that area. I also teach a seminar in stress. And again, depending on what the current state of the um, field is, um, I'll be changing what I teach in the articles that I um that I assign. So, yeah, I think there is a keeping up with the with the literature and your field um, definitely reflects on the teaching. And then as far as the teaching um, reflecting on your research, I think it makes you a clearer communicator. Um, I, I personally have found that. I think when I used to write grants or write papers, I think being here at Barnard for the last 12, 13 years has made me hopefully a better writer. And thinking about what my audience is going to be getting from what I say and how I say it. Uh, so I think there's been that um, sort of back and forth between my teaching and my research. Uh, as far as your question about teachers and grants, or they, I mean, there are certainly grants that can help one develop one's teaching and to implement new ways of teaching and thinking about the way that one teaches. There's certainly, this is a lot of grants in the context of pedagogy. Um, but as far as sort of the basic research grants um, in, in which you're, um, you know, coming up with, with a testable hypothesis in your, in your model and then you try to gather data, I, I don't really think that being um, the teacher helps in that respect outside of the ability, I think, to better communicate one science. But um, in fact, uh, sometimes when you're doing research, um, the granting agency will allow you actually to reduce some of your teaching uh, so that you can devote a little more time to the research because, you know, there's only so much time in the day. Mm. Um, but uh, normally they, they want to make sure that if you propose a certain line of research that you'll be able to complete it in a timely fashion. Um, uh, so uh, teaching figures in the equation that way, but perhaps not the way that one might think. So this is interesting. I, I'm, I'm, tell me if I'm wrong, but I, I'm, Pretty sure most university professors, and let's speak specifically about Columbia University, sees they, they see themselves as a researcher first and then a teacher. How how has that been that transition from thinking, oh, I want to do this because I love research and I want to be a neuroscientist, and then being placed into the role of teacher, sometimes very young in in graduate school as a PhD student. Have you felt prepared or not prepared to do the work of teaching students? And I guess what in general do you think of being a teacher? Yeah, I, I, I think with experience, I, I, I think I've developed a lot as a teacher over the years. And I can think back of when I, when, even when I was teaching as a graduate student as a TA, um, to even my first classes that I was teaching at Barnard, I, I, I mean, they have changed a lot, hopefully for the better. Um, but it, <laughs> it has changed a lot because I really didn't have that much experience as a teacher. And um, it's always one of those things that's a little bit strange to think that your professors, at least a lot of them, um, are teaching all, all these courses uh, and yet have had really no formal training in the context of teaching. Um, that that, I, I think that it, it's changing a lot. And I think it also depends on the institution. And Barnard is an institution where there are resources for faculty to develop their teaching skills and develop and, as a college, yeah. for sure. I don't know that 
the university that's as that's a true. whole. That's true. But there, I mean, but right. but in, in Columbia does have the same, uh, somewhat of the same uh, same resources. But again, it also is incumbent upon the faculty member to to seek out those uh, resources and to and to um, be able to learn. But that's placed upon the teacher. Mm-hmm. That's so. I mean, what you're you're spending a majority of your time doing your research, which is the thing that you really care about. You know, publishing new knowledge, making sure you're up to date with everything going on in your own personal field. But then, I guess students that are involved with research, myself included, we know this that the average the average student, I'm not sure, knows how much time is taken up by you wanting to do your research and having to fund yourself being a good teacher or being mm-hmm. a good researcher. It, it, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of cohesiveness going yeah, on. Yeah. And, and, and I think they, they, again, at least at a place like Barnard, it's, there's, there is some recognition of that, of that struggle. And, um, yeah. and That's with great the, to know. you know, the center for engaged pedagogy, for instance, there, there are things that are happening at, at, at least at Barnard and, and you're right. It, it is different, um, at, at Columbia and beyond. Um, and it, what's, What's really interesting about this is I came from, I did um, a postdoc at Rockefeller University, as I was saying uh, before, and I was there for six years uh, from 2001 to 2006, 2007, sorry. Um, And Rockefeller University is a research institute. There are no undergraduates. It's just a biomedical um, institute. And although they do have, they they started a graduate program in in the 50s. Um, even for its first 50 years of existence, it was purely a research institute, a medical research institute, and his is, is now as, as a university. But yeah, so coming from a, uh, a purely research university, which is Rockefeller University, to uh, Barnard, um, it, was, uh, it was a big change. And um, although that's what I wanted, I wanted to pursue that, that area of my career, and I certainly had experience with teaching and some advising as a graduate student and even as an undergraduate. So uh, it's definitely something that I wanted to pursue, which is why I applied in the first place. But um, it was it was a it was a significant change in an environment and expectation of of the fact that instead of doing research twenty four seven, it was then also balancing that with teaching as well as as advising and then administrative work, uh, which usually you don't have to do. As, right, as a I was going to say, add on your your chair position, you're just everywhere in, in this, in, in psychology. It's really incredible just the breadth of positions that you've been able to hold throughout your, your whole career. It's really incredible. Well, it, it keeps it, well, it certainly keeps it interesting, right? I mean, any given day, you can look at your schedule and at least, you know, <laughs> you know, it's very rarely going to be the same thing day in and day out, which is great. I mean, and, and, yeah. and that's something that I find attractive about about this um and, and not no, I do and not too. what i consider the a, a problem with it but yeah it, it does it you know sometimes it, it's also there's a rhythm to the year to the academic year and i think there are times uh, particularly for instance during the summer where um you know you can devote much more time to research uh, than teaching and there are other times you're devoting more time to your teaching and advising so there also is you know this kind of waxes and wanes and um you know, I think it's just when you start getting a little bit, you know, frustrated with one aspect of your job, it changes, thankfully, and uh, gives you a chance to mm. kind of uh, go and then become frustrated with a different part of, that part of your job. But um, <laughs> there, but that, yeah, it's but that cool. rhythm, I think, also helps. And um, uh, this idea of like when um, I, I when I get emails sometimes from students and it's over a, a break. Um, you know, they'll say, well, I hope you're enjoying your break. And, you know, and, and, and I am. 
uh, it, it's just it's not so much a break it's that it's like oh but now i'm but now i'm enjoying doing this and i'm you know i'm in the lab yeah. doing 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 something so um it's just uh you know that that rhythm of the academic year is is nice in the sense that uh, you get a chance to uh, focus on different things at different times and it's not always trying to wear all those hats every week of the year because um, I think that would become exhausting and one would it would just lead to burnout but I do think that rhythm of the academic year helps immensely so we're, we're running a little low on time which I'm very sad about I've really enjoyed talking to you and I have personally learned a lot in this conversation I love to end the show just with advice. I think there's nothing more valuable, particularly from professors and individuals like yourself that have seen such a wide array of opportunity in this field. What would you say to anybody looking to get involved in the psych world, pursue further education? What would you say? What would be like a final note that you would want to state? Um, well, first of all, stay curious. I think curiosity, no matter what field you're in, curiosity is so important. If you, I mean, I, I always find myself asking questions about things, and I think many of us do find ourselves asking questions about things, and um, that's a, a, that's a great quality, and try to cultivate that. Um, don't think that oh, I'm just you know I'm, I'm in my mind you know going in circles. Uh, embrace that curiosity. Um, but as far as advice, um, how, then how does one put that curiosity into practice? Um, ask questions um, and, uh, and and not just in class about whatever material you're on, but ask questions of faculty about opportunities. Um, are, do you have a lab? And if you do, are you looking for people to, to work, um, to get credit or um, to get financially compensated for that work? Uh, there's lots of opportunities uh, to get involved in work here at, at Barnard, not the least of which is something like the Summer Research Institute. But um, even during, mm, but during the academic great. year, again, many different ways of being able to get involved with the research that your faculty are doing. Um, it is a unique place in that you really get to do the work with the faculty. Um, and that's not to, to discourage um, research universities where perhaps the interaction would be mostly with a postdoc or a graduate student because that's obviously valuable too. But here at Barnard, it's it's the students working with the faculty um, largely. And that is, uh, I, I think, a relatively unique thing, um, at least in my experience. So um, my advice would be to um, don't hesitate to send the email or when you're finally in person knocking on doors. I think it's um, it, it's... We're expecting that from students, so it wouldn't be out of the ordinary. And uh, I think it's the way that um, that you you can start putting that curiosity to to work <laughs> and get and start working with faculty and get involved in research, whether it be your own or part of what they're doing. I love that idea that that you guys are expecting that. That says everything about the institution that we're a part of, and I feel very proud, particularly <laughs> in this moment, to be a Barnard student. Um, it's wonderful to know that there's faculty like you that are uh, that are rooting for us, that that need us. So, <laughs> Professor Romeo, thank you so, so much for coming thank on the show. Thank you very much. For everybody listening, uh, reach out, stay curious. You just got psyched and have a great rest of your day. 